Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Thank you for that. I mean, what a what a great song. The scriptures, are we on there, bud? Okay. <clears throat> when we think about the scriptures, everything is exactly what that song was talking about. Behold our God. So take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to do just that. We're going to look at the awesomeness of Christ, and take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we have two narrative passages that really sets this chapter apart, and of course we come to a long passage or pericope, a a segment of of truth that that sets our attention. So I want to read it in its entirety, and you know your pastor, he's not going to be able to get through all of it, but it's one of those things where I I want this to really settle in our souls, and there's some things I want to say at the beginning that I think it's important for us to understand when we approach this, this text. But the title of the sermon, if you notice in your sermon outline, is A Miracle Inside a Miracle. Look with your eyes, starting in verse 21, and follow along as I read. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her, so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for for 12 years, and had endured much at the hands of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And, Jesus and his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? 
But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave orders, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. Let us pray. Father, we are astounded how you have moved, how you display your power, your divinity, your compassion, and your love. All these things just bounce off the text, this interaction of the people pressing against you, wanting maybe something selfish out of you, and yet in the midst of it all, you take the time to, to love on these individuals, to show that you have power over sickness and death, that you have power even over death. We love you, Father, and just ask that you will allow us to be amazed just as much as those who saw this account. We know that you continue to work your work within our lives. Your hand is displayed and it's shown, and we just ask, Lord, that we continue to marvel at the greatness of our God. And so be with your servant. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, it's hard not to push away from a narrative like that with just awe and wonder. We, we saw that earlier in the first 20 verses where, where everybody was astounded by the Jesus casting out the legion of demons in a man that was tormented night and day. And then we come to another narrative, another, another passage that, that displays the greatness of Christ. I mean, chapter 4 and chapter 5, I mean, if, if, if that's all we had, according to the scriptures, we would all just be amazed and fall down and worship, much like those, these individuals did, in all of all that he's done. A powerful testimony of the power and the compassion of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's what the scriptures point to and, and, and narrowly focused. All three synoptic gospels share this story in the way that it happened. There's a few nuances that are a little bit different. It's interesting to me that, that Mark points out to us that, that, that the woman had spent all of her resources to try to get well, and yet to no avail. It says in the scriptures that, that the woman actually was made worse 
By the way, Luke, a physician, doesn't mention that at all, which is kind of remarkable. We'll talk a little bit about that next week, but just, just the nuances of these things, just what was happening and, and what is happening within the narrative. It's really a story, a, a miracle inside a miracle. Jesus, of course, was, was heading to Jairus' house. He, he, he wanted to display his glory by raising this little girl, and, and yet in the divine promise of God, a woman touches her, touches him, excuse me, and, and she is made well. He takes time. I mean, it just grips our, our hearts when we think about this. And what takes place is nothing less than Jesus showing us his deity and divine compassion to those who are in great need. Now, I think it would serve us well, before we even dive into the text, I, I kind of want to set up some theological understandings that, that I think serves us well when we, when we look through this narrative. And so please take a moment with me here as I, I think about these things, that if we understood in a larger theological t- context of what's happening, what's on display, we can grasp the gravity of the text. For one, you have here in Mark chapter 5, and at the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus' divine power over everything. If you remember, Mark chapter 4, he was on the boat with his disciples. He was on a cushion sleeping. The storm was raging. The disciples, who were fishermen, were greatly afraid of their lives. And so they awaken Jesus. He wakes up, and he calms the storm. Literally, the, the Greek says he hushed the storm. It was like a glassy sea. And then you move into Mark, and, and so you have this display of Jesus' power over creation, only moving into Mark chapter 5, where he goes to, the, to this other side of the Sea of uh, Galilee, where he is encountered by a, a demon-possessed man who had many demons in his life. And there again, he is able to hush the evilness within this man and cast out all these demons. Again, showing his power over Satan and his minions. And then you get to where we're at this morning, where we have this this situation where a a synagogue ruler, official, is is losing his 12-year-old daughter, very desperate, without hope, coming to Christ on a mission and asking him to come and heal his daughter. That in itself was pretty remarkable, and we'll look at him a little bit this morning, but it's just remarkable to see these things. But yet Jesus is, is, is kind and faithful, and he displays his power over death, that not even death can hold him back. It obeys his command. But then you have a woman who has been sick for 12 years, constantly bleeding, having a, a woman issue that continues to flow from her life and, and, and marked her unclean. And yet Jesus, allowing his power to, to go, heals the suffering woman. Again, power over creation, power over Satan and his minion, power over sickness, power over death. I'm just amazed by this, and so should you, just, just the reality of, of, of a constant onset. Mark is so purposeful in making sure that we understand the deity and the power of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Look to the screen where Paul reminds us of the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus 
when he says in verse 15, he says he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Here's a summation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him, and get this, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Beloved, there is no one greater than Jesus Christ. There is no one greater than Christ. He's not some addendum to your life. Listen, beloved, he is your life. He is the Lord of your life. Displaying it, showing us all these things, the things that will accomplish glory and praise only to him. And these miracles are, are put on display for us, not only displaying his power, but it's for the purpose that you and I walk away with this understanding that, that Jesus Christ is king, that he is Lord of all, and that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. The supremacy of Jesus within these narratives is so remarkable that one can only do what the two individuals did. Jairus and the woman who suffered, they all fell at his feet. There's an act of worship there, which is pretty remarkable because when you think about a Jew, a Jew doesn't, they didn't have an earthly king. They had no one to bow to except for what? For God. Except for God, and here you have this, this interaction where these two individuals, in, in the midst of, of seeing the miracles around the Sea of Galilee, they do nothing but bow and worship. For they had a faith that was pretty remarkable, and we'll look at that here shortly. But the first theological thought I want you to hold on to as we go through this passage is that Jesus Christ is supreme, that he is Lord. Now mixed with that, we have some other things going on here. There's a second theological truth I want you to grasp and hold on to, and that is the depravity of man. This is pretty remarkable. You think about it. Ever since the fall of the human race, starting with Adam and Eve, all of mankind is what? They're depraved. We get this clearly from the scriptures. Romans 3.23, for all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a single human being who has not sinned. And because we have all sinned, we find ourselves guilty and deserving of hell, Scripture tells us. James tells us in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. And the first part of Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is what? It's death. 
Outside of Christ, beloved, our understanding of the human race is that we are sinful and fall short of the glory of God. No wonder the world is going to hell in a handbasket, right? And in light of that, we stand in judgment. The unbelieving world stands in judgment. Even those who are in Christ Jesus will stand in judgment. But here's a big difference between those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are saved in Christ Jesus stand in the grace of Jesus. And they stand in the atonement and the power and the righteousness of Christ where God he gives that grace and mercy and gives us something that we don't deserve, eternal life, eternal mercy. What's remarkable about this depravity is that, and I'm reminded of this daily, I laugh at my life. I don't know if you do that yourself, but I laugh at my life when I think about how depraved our bodies are because they don't function the way that we want them to. Have you noticed that? In light of depravity, it tells me that we are going to have sickness. We're going to have disease. We're going to have suffering and sorrow. All of this because our bodies are in the full effect in the midst of depravity. And ultimately, as the scripture has told us, that depravity leads to us to an earthly death. James 1.15 tells us then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That is the result of sin. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man... Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so there, since there is depravity of sin that every person has to deal with, the greatest question we must ask of God, is there any escape? Is there any hope? Is there a way out? I remember the, the, the time when my good friend shared the gospel with me. I mean, he laid such a heavy guilt, which I think the Spirit used. I mean, he just used my, my sin against me. The Spirit just pressed upon me. And I remember sitting in the car asking him, is there a way out? Is there any hope? Should I just crawl up in the corner and die? And that's the joy of the Scriptures. The joy of the scriptures is the fact that there is a way out. There is a Savior. There is one who can atone for your sins. There is one who to give you grace and mercy, something that you and I don't deserve. That there is a deliverer, a redeemer, a Savior. And by the way, it is so specific that there's only one who can do that. Not many, but one. There's only one who can save you. It's not you plus this one. It is only this one. And of course, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me or but through me. Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he says, for, speaking about Jesus, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know what's blasphemous is, is to think that there's another way. When scriptures have clearly demonstrated that there is only one way. 
It's blasphemous to the Lord Jesus Christ to think that, you know what, there's got to be some good in all these other religions. When Jesus says there's only one who's good, that he is the holy and righteous one. Jesus is the only one who can reverse the death of curse, the death curse of your life. You can't save yourself. You can't raise your loved ones from the dead. You can't heal yourself. That's why we all need Christ. No wonder that the crowds gathered around him. No wonder a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years and the doctors made worse went to Christ. No wonder a desperate and helpless man turned to Jesus to heal his precious 12-year-old daughter. No wonder you and I need him more than anything else. So you have God's supremacy. You have God being Lord over all. You have man in the condition of sin, which leads us to this whole third issue in this final theological truth that I want you to, to have some, some, some thought to when we go to this passage. And that is, not only does he show his power to overcome everything, not only is Jesus the rescuer and the savior, but you must not forget that Jesus is also compassionate Savior, right? He, he is so compassionate, willing to save. And that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, he stops what he's doing, and he deals with the people at hand. His availability was, was much. He, the, he allowed the people to press it in on him. I think of Psalm 86.15 where it tells us, But you, O Lord, are, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 116.5, Gracious is the Lord in righteousness. Yes, our God is compassionate. James 5.11, We count those who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. How can one not get this point, especially in light of your own salvation? How merciful and compassionate that Jesus is to save your soul. And let's just say patient. How patient he is in the midst of all that. And so as we start diving in this passage, we, we need to understand that these things are, 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 are a great moving part in the midst of this narrative. God's power his compassion, and the fact that man is depraved and needing a savior and a rescuer. All those things come out to light when we think about this passage. All three of these truths will help you understand the passage and make you all the more in love and awe of Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, it's been a great week studying a chapter that is just so remarkable about Christ. Which, by the way, beloved... He doesn't just do that then. He does that now. He wants to be supreme in your life. He wants you, you to understand his divinity. He wants you to... In all things. Not just some of the things, but all things. Now let's turn our attention to the passage. Let's dive into this with the time that we have left. The first point that we see is, is that we see a faith of a loving father. I mean, it's, just, it's pretty remarkable when we start going through this. 
But Mark gives us a little bit of context, starting in verse 21. Look at it again. It says, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. Remember, this is the same seashore that he just left in Mark chapter 4 at the end of it. And he's on the boat, and he was heading over to the other side, that eastern side of, of, of the Sea of Galilee, and he's there, and he's met by a demon-possessed man. He performs his miracles, and you would think that everybody would applaud him and receive him with great joy. And what do they do? They tell him to, to leave, to get away. And so what do they do in the divine promise of God? Here he comes again across back. The people, the text in Luke tells us that he's almost, I mean, they are anticipating. They haven't left the first time. And they are there to gather him Again, at the shore was a welcoming community of sorts. Uh, only the Lord really knows what's going on in their hearts, but most likely they are there for their own endeavors. They want the healing touch of Christ. Whatever element that they had, they knew that Jesus had displayed. I mean, you think about this. When you read the Gospels, you can't help but understand that there wasn't just a sporadic at nature of, of miracles. There were miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. So much so that in John's gospel, he says the books can't even contain all the miracles that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And so they are inundated with the reality of, of, of all these miracles, these healings, this divine power on display and changing people's lives. But you and I both know that Jesus didn't come just for the miracles, did he? Those are examples of his deity. But he clearly told us why he came. I think of Mark chapter 1 where he tells us that he come to, to tell the people that the kingdom of God is at hand and, and calling them to repent and to believe. That was the heart of his message. That's the reason why he came. And, and yet when he, Mark progresses, the reason why he tells uh, these individuals, Jairus and his, and his wife, to, to not go out and tell any, anybody about what had just happened and raising his daughter from the dead is because... There's more that got to happen. He still has to go to the cross, and he still is going to resurrect from the, from the grave. And, and so you have all these things kind of in play as he's heading towards that great event where he will atone for the sins of those who believe in him. And so here you have this crowd. They weren't a, a passive crowd. As soon as he set shore, Scripture tells us he had to stay by the seashore because they were pressing in on him. They were shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek. They, they, they wanted their issue addressed by Christ. I mean, if the scene is anything, picture this. It's much like trying to enter into a sporting event or a music concert where everybody's pressed against the windows waiting for the gentleman. You ever imagine being on the other side of that, seeing all those faces coming at you and trying to open the door? But here they are. Jesus had an instant audience wherever he went. He was no doubt teaching them about the kingdom of God and the fact that he came to, to save and redeem them. In all reality, like I say, they were there, particularly not in, maybe interested in his message. They were a fickle crowd. They were wanting selfish endeavors. 
They wanted temporal matters to be dealt with instead of maybe the thought of the eternal. But in the midst of this, in the midst of their fickle hearts and their desire to be self-serving, you have two individuals that stand out in this crowd. And they were two people who had great faith. The story in itself is, is pretty remarkable. It's almost like two bookends here. They are on two different perspectives. On the one hand, you had Jairus, who was a man who was rich, who, who was sought as somebody who was in the synagogue, well-respected amongst the people. On the other hand, you had a woman who was poor, who was desperate. And according to the scripture, Levitical law, because she had a blood issue, she had a, a ceremonial uncleanliness about her that, that separated her from church. She could never get to the place where her blood would stop so that she could go to church, go to the synagogue. It wasn't that she was, had a sinful condition. It was that the fact that she had a ceremonial one. She, she was unclean and able, unable to attend the synagogue. She had, according to the Levitical law, she had to separate herself for seven days. Anybody that she came in contact with had to do the same because she was unclean. We'll get to her, like I say, next week. But it's just her, her love and her passion. She no doubt had to come Undercover. The people knew who she was. She had to walk around saying that she was unclean. The, the issue at hand, no doubt, got, got spread around like wildfire that this gal cannot find healing and was constantly unclean. One respected, one rejected. One was leading the synagogue, and one was a, an outcast and not permitted to go to the synagogue. I don't think this is coincidence, but one had a 12-year-old daughter dying, and one had a 12-year-old hemorrhage that wouldn't stop. Both, however, were desperate. Both of them, the only cure for their lives was Christ. Both of them, as much as, as they examined the scene and understanding the, the cause, and they both had issues at hand. Think about Jairus here. He was the ruler, like I say, of the, of the synagogue, which would be somebody who took care of, of the orderly things of what happened daily. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a Pharisee. But yet he was a man, much like a deacon today in the church, who took care of things, opened the doors, and got things ready for the word of God to be read. And the reason why he was at odds with the religious establishment, I mean, he was, right? Because we know in Mark chapter 4 that the religious leadership of the day, they had enough of Christ. They wanted him dead. They wanted him gone. They wanted him exposed as what they called him the son of Satan. And so he had much in the midst of a great crowd to go down and bow and worship when your religious leaders, your leaders, told you that this guy, stay away from him, and here you have him bowing down and falling before Christ's feet. It's pretty remarkable. Then you have the woman. And like I drew out already, she is 
unceremonially unclean. I mean, she, she can't go places. She can't practice her faith. Her identity as being a Jew is now questioned, and she's an outcast. An outcast. And so here they find themselves attracted to the same individuals, and they believe that he is the only one that can heal them. This man was on a mission. This man was desperate, yet this man was full of faith. Why? Because his 12-year-old daughter was dying. Dying. Put yourself in that position, right? Your daughter. If there's somebody who, who, who has this relationship, is a dad and his daughters, right? That is compassionate and full of love. His only hope was Christ. If there was going to be anybody that heals his daughter, it's going to be Jesus. The reason I have tears is, though she was a niece, I think of Taylor. I think of this 14-year-old girl where we lost and wanting the Lord to intervene. Now, the greatest thing that the Lord did is he did intervene, received her as his own. But look again at verse 22. It reads there, One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and seeing him, fell at his feet. He literally prostrated himself at the feet of Jesus. Do you think that got everybody's attention? It got Jesus' attention. It got everybody around them their attention. The crowd knew who he was. They knew the stance of the, the scribes and the Pharisees who hated and resented Jesus. And here he is falling at the feet of Jesus. You and I both know that being prostrated before someone is, is an act of humility. It's an act of worship. It's an act of saying that you are greater than, than who I am. And so here was a heart of a man who had, had faith in the healer. Verse 23. It says there, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. I mean, he employed her, employed him. I mean, it's one of those things where he's literally pouring out his, his heart before the Savior. He understands that she's at the point of death. He is desperate in time. He, he's come to Christ, and he's begging him just to lay hands on her, knowing that she will get, well, you know, this synagogue ruler, he, he would have understood the healings of Christ. He would, he would have known, he would have saw. 
he would have seen all these interactions that were happening. He believed that Jesus could heal. He saw it with his own eyes. And here, somebody dear to him is dying. And he had faith in Christ to display it in such a way that he forsake it all to go to Christ. You can almost imagine, for one to, to make that realization, he had to understand the significance of what Jesus preached himself to be, and that being Lord and Savior, to him being the one that you put your faith in to repent and believe in him, to turn to him. He understood exactly what the demon had already proclaimed. The demon man at the beginning of this chapter who proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God. That he was the Messiah. That he was the Savior of the world. For him to do such an act, all these theological truths had to come rushing in with a true reality of what he's seen with his eyes, knowing that Jesus is his only hope. He most likely, maybe, maybe was a closet follower of the Lord Jesus. But as circumstances exposed themselves, he was desperate, and he now needed the Savior in a great way. And Jairus implored, he begged, literally calling for mercy for Jesus to come and heal his daughter. It was a desperate call, yet it was a call full of faith, knowing that, that Jesus Christ was the answer. And Jairus says, please come and lay your hands on her. And she will get well. Notice he didn't run to the doctors. Notice that he didn't run to anybody else. It's kind of interesting when we get to the place at the end of this passage where they even had the professional mourners already there. And what's remarkable about that when we look at that next week is the whole issue where you have professional mourners who have been around death all their life. They're paid to mourn. And they're in the house and they, they, they recognize death. They can smell death. They understand death. No wonder they laughed at Jesus when they said, he, she is only asleep. They had gathered, much like the vultures gathering around a dead carcass, it's, they're ready to pounce. In verse 24, Jesus literally stops what he's doing. Verse 24 tells us, And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. It makes sense. I think all of us would, would, would think that our Lord and our God, he, that they would, they would stop what they're doing and they would follow, follow Christ and Christ would do his thing. He didn't set up an appointment here. He heard the cry in his omniscience. He knows what's going to happen. And he sets off to this man's house. What does the crowd do? They follow, right? And it says that they're pressing in on him. He's literally bouncing off people here. And so he stops what he's doing. Here's a father's desperate plea to go heal his daughter. And the people are pressing in. 
His heart must have been, you think about the reality of not only begging and imploring for mercy and for the help of Christ, but to see Jesus start moving towards that request must have made the dad all the more joyful. The narrative is, is, is pretty interesting to me because there's an interruption, right? This is the miracle inside the miracle. You have this interruption of a woman who stops to show the movement towards Jairus' house and has her own needs to be dealt with. As much as there's great joy in Jairus, can you imagine the frustration and, and maybe even the impatience of a father? waiting for Jesus to, to deal with somebody else's issue. I mean, it's remarkable, and I, and I encourage you to continue to, to look at that. This is a great place for us to stop, and we'll pull over the bus here and pick up the next two points, like I say, next week. But there's a takeaway here, right? And I think there's one great takeaway that we need to understand when, we, when we've studied so far. And I think that's the faith of, of Jairus. It was remarkable. If anything, it's, it's an example. And when you think about the desperation, yes. Think about, I mean, it, it heightens our faith, does it not? Every struggle, every suffering, every, every trial heightens our faith to the one who is our greatest answer. Like we noted this could cost him his job, his standing in the synagogue, the disrespect of the people. But he's not flinching here. He is resolved to go to Christ knowing that Christ can heal his daughter. He knows that he must have full dependence on God's saving power in this predicament. There is no earthly means to remedy the case and the situation. His example of faith is, is something remarkable. Even in a day and age where medicine has progressed to such a degree where there is great cure, our hope, first and foremost, is Christ. We know that the Christian walk is in faith, we also know this, that our faith in Christ is not a walk in the park. It comes with trials. It comes with suffering. And often those things show their ugly head. We know according to Scripture that those things draw us to have a greater faith in Christ. If anything, when you look at Jairus and read these first four verses, I mean, it's just one of those things where you can't help but look at him knowing that he rests his daughter's life, his established life on Christ. Isn't that the call of the Scriptures? For us to walk in Christ to trust him, to understand his ways, to know that he is far superior, that we can look at persecution, we can look at suffering, and we can laugh because we know that there's someone who's greater 
than the evil that the world brings upon us? Faith also understands that this is not just something that's whimsical. It's not something that we just hope happens. We know that that faith is, is in the one who can do all things. Is the faith knowing that he has a plan and a purpose? It is a faith knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Scripture calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. We are to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so the simple takeaway in this riveting story is that when the going gets tough, we fix our eyes on Christ. By the way, it, it serves you well when things are going well to fix your eyes on Jesus. It's really not a situation where that doesn't bring healing to our souls and delight to our minds and hearts. Next week, Lord willing, the faith of a suffering woman. I mean, this is all the more remarkable in seeing her passion and her drive to touch the cloak of Jesus. And then... He picks up Jairus again. What all seems lost, he goes and he heals, resurrects. What's remarkable about that, so far in the Gospel of Mark, there has been nothing said about resurrection. I can't say that Jesus didn't resurrect somebody. But what's remarkable about this is that here we have an account of of actual resurrection of somebody who is dead coming back to life. We'll pick up more of that next week. Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for riveting our hearts towards the truth today. Powerful truth. An encounter with the Savior, knowing that his grace is sufficient for sinners. That your grace is sufficient for those who are, have even received you as Lord and Savior, knowing that your faith is sufficient to carry him through life. Father, we we pray that those who do know you, those who have trusted you, those who have turned from their sins and believed and have faith in Jesus Christ, that they continue to walk according to the Scriptures and in faith. For some who are knowing that that is the truth reality of it, and maybe yet find themselves in a deep hole. That is what pulls them out, knowing that there's a compassionate Savior who desires to strengthen them, encourage them, and continue to help them press on towards the upward call that's in Christ Jesus. Father, I also pray for the one who who doesn't know you, I shake my head at that. I don't understand that. And yet I do know this. Your kindness and your grace still extends to the unbelieving. 
that you continue to draw and you continue to bring and you open people's minds and hearts to the reality of, of how awesome you are and how you desire to save their souls, to give them peace and hope. And I pray, Father, that you will do that even today knowing that your, your grace, there's not an ending amount of your grace even to the most wicked sinner. And so we thank you for the power that you have displayed and how you save sinners and removing them from darkness, putting them into light and into the family of God. We love you. And we ask that our praise and adoration only continues to increase as we marvel at the greatness of our God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.